0: Welcome back to building a fighter. My name is Dr. Austin Shane sports chiropractor in Scottsdale, Arizona with me as always badass strength coach, Alex Friedman. He is in Denver, Colorado today. Today's going to be a good one. We got, we got a pretty high quality topic in store for you guys. We are talking about a needs analysis for combat sports. So what that means, we're going to break down the different facets of MMA so the different combat sports that filter into mixed martial arts uh, and give you an overview on how to train for each sport because we always talk about how n equals 1 right we talk about how it's important to train the athlete but if you don't understand the goal or if you don't understand the sport behind the athlete then you can't get the full picture it's like trying it's like <laughs> trying to paint without having a canvas <laughs> essentially so you need to understand you have to have that canvas before you can then paint a pretty picture and get that athlete to be as best as they can possibly be. So Alex, let's start with wrestling because that's our backgrounds. Right. I mean, physical preparation for wrestling, like if we, if we break down
1: and again, the some of the approach that I take with breaking down sports is we look at like the bioenergetics So, what energy systems do you need the biodynamics and the biomechanics. So energy systems in wrestling there's um honestly a high level wrestling there's a lot of alactic lactic um, bursts that go on right there's a lot of um fast blast doubles lifts um and all of those require a quick creatine type of explosion but then the, the majority of the work in your 7 to 10 minute match is going to be lactic stress like that's just where wrestling lives right um
0: how many go times are you how many times are you going to overtime if you're having a 10-minute match bro
1: i don't know man just chill <laughs> out <man>. what seven <laughs> minutes plus um one for normal overtime i mean i don't know two or three overtimes and i don't know to be honest i would have to look up the international freestyle greco rules to know the period lengths so i just figured i'd cover my my basics. (laughs) Two
0: two threes. Okay. There you go.
1: Um, but yeah, lactic stress. And then, um, and then we can get into having an aerobic base. I mean, that's, that's always on in the background and that's an important bucket to fill. It's just maybe not the KPI, the key performance indicator, the number one, uh, specific stressor to analyze. So, And I mean, we can dispel that right out of the bat, right? Energy systems they are all working at once. We just have to pick and choose which ones we emphasize based on the demands of the sports, the time, uh, the time that's demanded to perform the efforts that are expected. Um, and so just looking at all, all of that with the energy systems, we can classify wrestling as more of a lactic, a lactic sport.
0: Yeah. And then going into the biomechanics behind everything, or just like what you need from a joint to joint approach type model We need a whole bunch of hip mobility as well as hip stability. So it's got the hips are going to be a very crucial part of a wrestler. You got to be able to explode. You got to be able to get rapid hip extension, but you also need to be able to scramble. So you need to be able to have that internal and external rotation, trying to get that arc of, we'll say around, I mean, typically you want your arc to be around like 50 to 60 degrees. Um, But in reality, you want a little bit more external rotation rotation. Then internal rotation, uh, but you still do need internal rotation. A lot of wrestlers don't have that internal rotation that leads into a kinetic leak or a power leak up the chain. Um, You need very, very strong T-spine mobility. A lot of people don't realize that. And that's why necks get chewed up is because you're trying to do these sweeping motions. Think about a sweep single, think about riding legs and you aren't able to rotate through the T spine. So you're chewing up your shoulders and you're chewing up your neck instead. Um, You need strong necks. Oh, what's up before
1: we move on from the T spine. I think one good thing to dispel there. And I think one thing that, uh, I mean, I, I I, as a young practitioner, I think people under need to understand is like a strong T spine does not mean a stiff T-spine, right? We need to have mobility, right? You need to probably with your athlete, if if I'm going to go off just a, a very general oversight, you need to open up the T-spine and do a lot of mobilization with it before you create strength there. Otherwise you're just going to end up 100%. being being blocky and be, not being able to dissociate the hips and and uh, shoulders. So I think that's just a good point of clarification. Because Becoming strong in the T-spine probably requires being mobile in the
0: T-spine. A hundred percent. And then that brings up a good point where you need to be able to distinguish between the T-spine, so the mid-back, and then the lumbar spine, so the low back. Because a lot of people, when they do rotate, as dumb as it sounds, because the low back is supposed to be stable. That's supposed to be that stable base, that, that canister, if you will. But for the most part, say we do our sideline shoulder sweep assessment, we've talked about in the past, everybody wants to cheat through lumbar rotation, which doesn't make sense because of the facet orientations and it blocks it down. So there's really only like two degrees of rotation per lumbar vertebra, but neither here nor there that's too scientific, but everybody tries to cheat through low back extension or low back rotation. And in reality, we need to be able to move from the mid back. So like, if you've ever been to somebody like me to get your, like, if you go to get adjusted and that big loud pop in your middle of the back, that feels so fucking good guess what? That's your T spine. That is not moving. That probably hasn't moved for a decade. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and it's, it's not out of place. I've talked about this. It's not out of place, all these different things. It's just, it's not as mobile as it should be. So that's where we need to increase that mobility work. And it's extremely important for our wrestlers. The other thing that is extremely important is our ankle range of motion and trying to increase our dorsiflexion. So when we think about wrestling, we think about our knee over toe our rock over or whatever you want to call it, our duck walk. If we don't have act full range dorsiflexion, if we don't have control of that mobility over that movement, then that's going to chew up up the chain, which typically is what leads to a lot of our knee issues that aren't impact related. So if we don't have full dorsiflexion or full big toe extension as well, I'm going to lump those together as just foot and ankle mobility, then we are going to lack the mobility to rock over the top. And then something you're going to do the penetration step, no matter what, right? (laughs) No matter, no matter what you're going to hit your shot. And if, if you, if you don't have that range of motion of being able to rock your knee past your toe and safely get to the ground in order to penetrate forward, then it's going to chew up the knee and it's probably going to lead to I'm not a big fan of overuse, but it's it's going to lead to a change that's going to be painful in that area of the knee. So think about like the knee I've talked about. It's like the redheaded stepchild in the middle. It, it's if the ankle doesn't have mobility, the knee has to make up the slack, even though it's supposed to be stable. And that's what leads to a lot of knee injuries. So bring it all full circle with my biomechanical analysis. As a broad spectrum, we need a lot of hip stability and mobility. Both of those are crucial. We need Trunk stability, as far as well as thoracic spine mobility. And then we need to be able to get that dorsiflexion on our rock over. If we don't have that, then that's that's going to be a problem that manifests forward. So that's a huge yeah. thing for our younger athletes to focus on is our ankle health. Yeah,
1: and I, I mean, I think that's that's the key insight is that wherever there's a problem, it's it, it may not be that specific area that's a or that's the cause, right? It is finding the the loose or the weak link in the whole kinetic chain, right? Oh so, yeah. So finding those things and just knowing. What you're performing, um, again, goes into your sports specific knowledge is what we're talking about is like know what your athlete's doing. That way you can analyze, OK, it's not that they're hitting their knee or it's not that this is happening. It's whatever. It's that they're doing a knee overstep 100 times a day and their ankles can't handle it. So their knee hurts. Right. So that's uh, well,
0: one on, point, on, on but, a side. I just want to say on a side note. Isn't it so crazy that for the longest time that knee over toe was such a bad thing, but since forever people have been doing it in wrestling. <laughs> That's like Again, the first thing you're taught.
1: <laughs> it's a, I don't know, I, like tradition, quote unquote tradition, um, and I don't know, like generalized sport knowledge, or, uh, strength and conditioning knowledge. I think is sometimes very limited, like athletes are robust athletes are not fragile like uh, that's it's always been kind of ridiculous to me like don't go past parallel in a squat it's like have you seen anybody wrestle ever like do you know what type of range of motion these guys are accomplishing a sometimes with somebody picking somebody up from that range of motion like um which is a good segue into biodynamics right that we're talking about is our kind of third is like how does your athlete moves what neuromuscular and strength qualities do we need to address with these athletes um and I mean, obviously a big one in grappling in general with wrestling is going to be isometric strength. We have to be able to hold position. We have to be able to hold on to an appendage or hold our opponent down. We just be, have to be able to hold our form, whether that's squeezing with the groins and the inner thighs, the adductors, um, while you're riding legs or have a hook in, whether that's holding on to a wrist with your forearms or whether that's just, um, again, maintaining position on the bottom and not losing your base. So isometric strength. Um, in a variety of planes and movements and a variety of positions is going to be huge um, from my lens. And then the other one that I think gets overlooked because of the lactic emphasis in wrestling, I think a lot of people overlook the explosive strength and speed strength that's required from these athletes. Like if I'm shooting a double or even sometimes if I'm, I'm like throwing a leg or doing something quickly that I need explosive strength for, we don't, necessarily always train that in the weight room because we see athletes or we see wrestling as such a strength dominant sport, but in reality, they're moving their body weight in a powerful manner. And then at some point along the way, they're picking up at least their another body weights resistance. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and again, it's not like I'm just picking up, you know, whatever, 200 pounds of dead weight for my opponent. I'm going to catch either more than that. If he's resisting to me or a little bit less than that, if I'm just taking up a leg, but, so that goes into, and the way I break it down is like my body weight should be about 50% of my one RM and a deadlift or, uh, or a squat or whatever. So if I'm picking up 50% and I want to do it explosively, that to me goes in the categories of speed, strength, and explosive strength. Yep. So that's where we need to train when we get super specific, right? Or that's the quality we need to orient our training to peak to. So mm-hmm. Um, And there's different ways. Go ahead.
0: I was going to say, I was just asking you a question. So that's, that's a good segue in where obviously it's dynamic, but where would you see wrestling, if somebody wants to get better at wrestling, they're an MMA fighter. Where would you see that on a force velocity curve? And obviously it varies all the way through, right? Depending on the athlete, but as a sport yeah. in general, where's wrestling on that curve to you?
1: Wrestling, I mean, if we're going to put it in a strict MMA context and we think about the different sports, like um, for me, and I think for a lot of digital coaches, uh, when we think about force velocity curves, it's hard to take um, like lifting and huge force. Out of the equation. But in reality, when we think about MMA, like wrestling is one of the closest sports to the force aspect, right? It is one of the most strength dependent aspects of the MMA uh, or of the sport. That being said, if we put that just on a traditional force velocity curve, where we have like our one RM at the bottom, wrestling is going to be at least upper half, right? Mm It's not going to be, it's not going to be your one RM 450 pound deadlift is not the same strength emphasis as in wrestling, but of MMA, it's one of the more strength dependent sports. Yeah.
0: So MMA is more speed strength. And then on the end of that wrestling is the strength part.
1: Yeah. Yeah. If if you want to analyze it like that, but, but like I said, don't overlook the explosivity that is
0: necessary. I'm just a simpleton
1: and I like things (laughs) broken down, but I mean, yeah. (laughs) I don't know. A good analogy or a good way to think about it too is like, it is everybody knows Jordan Burroughs. If you're in the wrestling community yeah. by now, like that dude is exploding and he needs explosive repeatability in his wrestling style. He doesn't necessarily need the the crackdown, the hold strength as much, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's a good example of what I'm talking about when we're training explosive strength and speed strength um, within a wrestling context.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. But then there's also the Ben Askrens. Yeah. there uh, again, I mean,
1: and that's where we take what we're talking about right here. I'm, I'm just fucking with you to get the context to apply to your individual that you're doing your assessment. Yeah. On. So like you said, there's, le- there's levels and there's layers to it. You got to know which buckets you want to fill because of the sport. And then you need to know which buckets are already full or are empty depending on your athlete. Yep, yep. And I think that but, that was a good thing to cover just generally in the whole needs analysis podcast that that you need
0: to consider for sure. And then moving from wrestling, <clears throat> let's stick with, let's stick with grappling. Let's go to jujitsu. So jujitsu, we know it's a little bit more slower paced um, for the most part, the longer match for the most part um, to me personally, if we're looking at like a like a bio, bioener what was the first one? Bioenergetics. Is that what you said. Yeah. Um, I like I like that too. Bioenergetics, biomechanics, and biodynamics—the big B's. I forget who I
1: who I stole that from. I definitely stole it from somebody. It's what's nice. what's it's better,
0: the big B's or the three B's?
1: Are you trying to reference the killer bees from the Astros? No, I want to make a new thing. Oh,
0: okay.
1: You know the killer bees from the Astros? Like throwing it back to my my baseball days.
0: No. Um, oh, Bergman and. Uh, uh,
1: I forget all of them, but there was like four or five yeah. bees in a row at the top of that lineup, and then they were really good. I do remember them, Craig Biggio yeah exactly yeah Uh, super squat stance that's cool um anyway yeah anyway
0: (laughs) um um, i don't know what i would call it the the tree bees anyways continuing yes please (laughs) uh bioenergetics of uh brazilian jiu-jitsu so we it's going to be a little bit slower of a pace i would say it's going to have a lot more emphasis on our aerobic system because the matches are longer for the most part. Um, and then, but you can't overlook the a lactic presence because you are going to have to, especially if you're coming like, like me or Alex from the wrestling world, a lot of your passes are going to be a smash pass are going to be a quicker movement, all these different things. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, being able to pass and explode through and being able to knee slice into these different positions um, or explode. If you want to explode into the hole or into a submission. So there still has to be an a lactic emphasis But if we're comparing training a wrestler or training somebody that wants to get better at their wrestling capacity versus training somebody that wants to increase their jujitsu skills or jujitsu capacity, then I would say there needs to be a higher emphasis on aerobic work as opposed to your a lactic work. than if you were trying to train them to increase in wrestling,
1: sorry, I was not paying attention to what you said. Um, <clears throat> uh,
0: basically it's just compare, comparing, comparing jujitsu to wrestling. You need okay. to, I would say it's, uh, it's more important to train aerobic. aerobic yeah, work no, I, for I, I heard that. And I agree A-lactic. with that.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I think uh, one jujitsu is at times slower paced. Um, there's not a lot of separation. Um, if you, I mean, very few people to play jujitsu in a uh takedown manner. So yeah, there's a lot less impact, a lot more need for you know, long duration and capabilities. Talking about biomechanics with uh jujitsu, a lot of I mean a lot of similarities. We need a bit pr- um a lot more, I would say joint specific mobility um in mm-hmm. in <clears throat> every joint, I mean, that's the submission game, right? Is that you just need to be able to accomplish, especially with Kamoras and shoulder, external internal rotation um, and talk about ankle mobility and things like that. that are going to manifest itself in a heel hook and then knees getting chewed up. So joint specific uh, mobility becomes, I mean, super important. And, but a caveat with that too, is like you're not going to find a lot better mobility training in that than rolling jujitsu. Um,
0: for sure. I like, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, so a normal, <clears throat> sorry, those coffee hit me. Um, I need more. I know. Uh, but so a normal person's arc of their internal external rotation, what that's sitting around 120 130 ish, if you will. Um, that that's what we look for. I would, I would argue that as a jujitsu practitioner, it would be more beneficial to have a little bit more mobility through the shoulders than the average person. So doing those, doing those different joint mobility, specific exercises, this is where I would say that FRC is second to none in shoulder mobility. And I'm not even an F, I'm not even an FRC guy. It's, it's, it's a great course, but it's not my lens that I like to look through. But it's a a great specific tool for a specific
1: problem in jujitsu.
0: Exactly. It's like that little, it's like that little, uh, that little Allen wrench. That yeah. you use like twice a year. Yeah, the eyeglasses <laughs>
1: screwdriver that just works yeah. on your eyeglasses. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but it, it's a fantastic tool to increase your joint, mob- specific joint mobility that's going to overall increase your longevity mm-hmm. in jujitsu or in your grappling sports. So I would say doing doing your pails and rails, doing your cars um, through the shoulder girdle are going to be a fantastic addition and they're going to increase your shoulder mobility, which bringing it back to needs analysis, jujitsu athletes need a lot of, and they need a, I would say a bigger arc. So internal external rotation combined, that's what I mean by shoulder rotation arc than the average human kind of almost, I would say almost like a baseball pitcher.
1: Yeah. I mean, very close. Like baseball pitchers get to a little extreme and there you can make a difference in biodynamics. Right. The, the jujitsu athlete is not accomplishing those range of motions at the velocity that a baseball pitcher would. But mm-hmm. I want to introduce this topic for biomechanics for jujitsu. And then I'm going to let Austin take over because I where he's an expert. Right. But the spine up and down jujitsu in the spine. Like we got neck cranks. You got a ton of lumbar issues with jujitsu players. Like it needs to be addressed. We need to be strong in the spine, but also mobile. And and, and then there's problems going on. Austin's a man to see, but like Austin, what are your top needs for the spine within jujitsu? Because I know that's such a frequently um, complained about or a frequent issue
0: with some of these athletes. Mm -hmm. Uh, So for me personally, I look at lumbo pelvic control is going to be one of the first things because they are in a loaded flexed state. I need to make sure that they can dissociate and aso- associate rapidly and efficiently. Okay. So, and then that also kind of plays into patterning. I break my stuff down to, can the person separate lumbar spine from pelvis? Yes or no. Can they do it safely? Then on top of that, can they do an ipsilateral pattern safely? Yes or no. And is it efficient if they can't roll from their back to their side without keeping their canister created and keeping, keeping that expansion. So say they're in a dead bug position, think about actually just think about a sweep, a regular sweep. Can you roll from your back and guard to top position without dissociating your rib cage from your pelvis? Yes or no. If you can't do that, then they're most likely are going to be low back problems in your future. If you roll two shitsu. Just, just there's nothing about it that's going to increase the shear force on your low back because it's twisting it. Mm-hmm. Think about a similar mechanic to a twister, if you will. It's going to increase the shear force on your back with another human body on top of you, and it's going to lead to not always, but for the most part, going to lead to potential damage moving forward. Yeah, like you're wringing out a towel like that type of a hundred percent on your back
1: is not, not not good. That's not that's not a good thing to do to your spine.
0: Right. And that, and it's not to say that it's always going to cause a problem, right? Because it's, it, we know that overuse is a term that used to be used way too much and it's not as much of a thing currently it, that's, mm-hmm. that's almost like a no, no word is overuse injuries. But if we're looking at the likelihood, the likelihood of adding a shear force with another human body on top of you and leading to disc injuries is very high.
1: Yeah. Um, for a dummy like me as a strength coach who knows, about lumbo-pelvic control from a cat cow position, from a anterior-posterior tilt pattern, and essentially that's about. I mean, as far as I go with teaching lumbo-pelvic movement and uh, just like the tip, tipping your an- your pelvis anteriorly or posteriorly, like. I go through a progression with my athletes and, and a lot of them are high schoolers that never move their hips. Right. Think of high school boys and how much mm-hmm. they know how to move their hips. Right. So I teach them how to do that. I teach them specifically how to do it in like an RDL position because that hinge uh, is going to be super important if they're lifting weights, moving forward. Um, and I just think about that anterior and posterior tilt. I think about building a core and building the brace with it. But as far as learning that pelvic control, what what is your general approach with that?
0: I do it in a, a multi step approach because I so I start technically for my lumbo pelvic control. I I don't I say lumbo pelvic because that's the right term to use, but I really just I I personally my lens is rib cage and down, so diaphragm to diaphragm. Yeah. So I always 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 start at the rib cage and the and the thoracic diaphragm because for the most part, if we look at the research, that's the problem. It's that you have jacked up lumbar erectors and that's causing you to stay in that open scissors position or that that uh, extension compression stability strategy. Yep. That's me present. Yeah. hundred <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, percent. And then what we can do a lot of the times we can fix the pelvis issues, quote unquote, that PRI talks about a whole bunch with mm-hmm. just learning how to breathe and learning how to set your rib cage over your pelvis. So that's my first step. And my, the, how I go about that is I start with breathing and it's boring and everybody hates mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. but it, it, it helps a lot of things. Once I assess the breathing and once I get them actually being able to expand in 360 degrees, then I go into a dead bug complex, both ipsilateral and contralateral. So opposite arms, contralateral, ipsilateral, same same side, arm and leg, and being able to efficiently keep your rib cage connected to your pelvis. So association. I always train association before I train dissociation, because for me personally, it makes sense that you want to over-exaggerate something before you can then, you you want to put things together before you can take them apart. It's almost like how the Marines talk about like, Hey, you gotta, you gotta be able to build your gun up and then you gotta be able to take it down, clean every little thing and then put it back together again. I want to, I want to be able to make it before I break it. So We, we do that association exercises. That's going to be our stability exercises, our breathing, our bracing, our dead bugs, our bird dogs, all of those corrective exercises. This is where I love DNS dynamic neuromuscular stabilization. I bring in my patterning and then once. We learn how to associate in an athletic setting. So I have them do sweeps actually. And with me on top, and I have them being able to brace in a sweep, then we can learn on dissociation, which is going to be a lot of our sling work. It's going to be a lot of our rotation-based exercises and trying to be like uh, one that I love. I love, I love, I love because it has a lot of different things. And we've talked about it is rotational rear foot elevated split squats. If they have the ability to do a rear foot elevated split squat, I can teach them to rotate through the upper half while keeping their pelvis stable. And that's going to be that dissociative property. That's going to benefit them in a athletic setting. And then it's fun too. So my, my big ones to stop my rambling is we got to associate first do our breathing work and do our stability work. And then we can dissociate and get to all the fun exercises like our pulley push pulls our rotational work for the split squats, all our sling work. Yeah, absolutely. I think that,
1: I mean, I, I, I don't know. I just find a lot of value in that, which is why I asked the question. Um, mm-hmm. And then moving on now, biodynamics quickly with um, our jujitsu hey, athletes.
0: I'm not done with the biomechanics. Uh, I got right, one more right, thing right, I want right, to right, talk
1: right, about All right, all right, all right, all right, right, right,
0: just because I feel like it's overlooked a whole bunch and, and for jujitsu athletes, wrists, 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 wrists. All of you has have wrist injuries, yep. and none of you ever fucking treat them.
1: And everyone go <laughs> and everyone is wrist locked this, wrist locked that. Yeah,
0: and all you do is tape them, and that's obviously not going to work. Doesn't help. Yep. So being able to have non painful wrist extension that is something. Yes, think about a front rack position. If you feel like your wrist is is, if you lift up and you're doing a front squat and you feel like your wrist is pinching and about to break guess what if somebody goes for a wrist lock on you in jujitsu a you're going to tap hurt. really quick <laughs> or hurt. b you're not going to tap and it's going to hurt something yeah. if you do the, again this is where i love my cars if you do wrist cars or you do, uh, actually, this is where I really like animal flow. This is where I bring my animal flow background into everything and have them do a wave unload and get keep their hands closer to them or have them do a beast reach and keep their wrists and get that loaded closed chain wrist extension. That's a fantastic way to increase our wrist extension, which is going to prolong your jujitsu career. Or if you're a fighter, increase your performance because if you have strong wrists, guess what? you can punch harder, which is where we're going to get to when we get to the striking side of the needs analysis. Right. But if you have stronger wrists, you, you can stabilize the wrist better, which is going to transmit more force.
1: Yeah. And I mean, and going off that, I think two things um, and it's two things. Cause I think I can sometimes think about two things at once, hopefully. Um, <laughs> but I think also we need to look just like we were speaking earlier, up and down the kinetic chain, like um, the increased shoulder, internal, external ranges of motion is going to do nothing but, help and assist your wrist mobility if we're going to talk about submission game right Mm -hmm. so being able to achieve some of those degrees of freedom and range of motion with the shoulder is going to take the pressure off your wrists in some instances um and then i mean that that's coming straight from like our front rack position a lot of times when people have wrist pain in a front rack it's not because their wrists lack mobility it's because Mm -hmm. of their their technical wrong somewhere or more likely their shoulder flexion is not how it should be and their lats are are pulling everything down. So look up and down that kinetic chain and then address that specifically. But the other thing that, that I thought that the second thing, um, I kept, I held onto it in my head. Sometimes that's hard. Look at this guy. I know. Right. Um, is a quick tell for this with a lot of my athletes is, um, I run a lot through a quadruped um, kind of flow or a quadruped series when we're warming up with a lot of athletes. And if my athletes' wrists get sore from four or five, six minutes of planting their hands into the ground, then that's a quick tell that there's something going on with the wrists and we need to address that. Like you should be able to hold your wrists on the ground. Like think of like a push-up position in that position, you should be able to hold that relatively pain-free for a long time um, mm-hmm. that can be a quick tell with our hands on the ground and then that's also a good way to mobilize but we should be able to to accomplish it and i think that's what you were talking about too with the animal flow and, and getting some of that positioning down that's an awesome position for the wrists
0: hell yeah dude any any wrist mobility or stability is going to benefit you because nobody trains it.
1: <laughs> yeah right um, <laughs> all right so then bio uh, dynamics for jujitsu athletes, isometric strength, sound like a broken record. Like, I, w- I don't know. I wouldn't say more than wrestling, but at least as much, um,
0: but I, I'm going to argue with you. I would say more than wrestling Yeah. because it's, 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 you're going, you're going to be in positions longer. Like think about sitting, sitting in a half guard and tr- thinking tr- like the, the chess game that is trying to pass from half guard to side control and yeah. being able to stabilize them and, and lock in that bottom leg. While they're think about them trying to shrimp out, you keeping them in one spot. Okay, that's all I'll, give you, I'll, I'll give you. I'll
1: give. I'll give you that from a, a durational standpoint. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. A, a longer duration isometric. Yeah. I don't know. So that we need would...
0: to increase the capacity of isometric strength.
1: Sure. Absolutely. And that's yeah. that's why in almost all. I mean, for all of my athletes, I do an isometric strength circuit uh, in their GPP. But um, that can be more into the specific work when we have jiu-jitsu athletes, too. Mm-hmm. So yeah. isometric strength, um, hands down. Um, I think a lot of ipsilateral patterning. And, I mean, Austin touched on this a ton with um, keeping your core brace and the, the canister full uh, in a lot of positions when we're on j- in our jiu jitsu sweeps when we're holding our position in top or bottom. It's just a lot of control around the spine.
0: One thing I want to throw in for both jiu jitsu and wrestling, I just mm-hmm. thought of that it gets neglected in a lot of programs is adductor strength. Adductor okay. strength, and I thought of it because of isometrics and Copenhagen's is one of the best ways to train the adductor. But if you're leg riding or think about like if you're playing a tight guard, you need to squeeze your knees together, right? If you will. That's Internal rotation of the of the hip, but it's also going to be a deduction or bringing your legs together. So why are we not training this? Think about that machine where you bring your legs together. Everybody laughs at it. Ha ha ha. It's so right. it's the worst, the worst machine at the gym, but you need strong adductors to be able to leg ride. You yeah. need, and that's adductors are going to be, if, if you're not from our background, that's going to be the inside of the thigh,
1: the groin. So yeah.
0: yeah, exactly. The groins. Like if, if you think about, if you think about anything involving a top game in wrestling, if you if you're a rider on top or jujitsu in general, top or bottom,
1: yeah,
0: like that isometric adductor strength is going to pay dividends moving forward.
1: But I also wanna want kind of counterpoint you there on that that butterfly machine or I don't know the in and out with your legs machine like that that machine's well and good and all but like it's not biodynamically specific or biodynamically accurate oh, right you're not no
0: I I was just using that as an example of what I know the but, are. but I, I fucking I wanna, hate that I, I do I, I do hate that machine
1: I want to poke at the bear <laughs> because you always poke back at me so <laughs> like again we're working on that's like a concentric strength. Um, stimulus yeah. never in your wrestling or jiu jitsu career should you be like consciously uh contracting your groins to try and squeeze somebody, like
0: hey, hey, slap it on a triangle, bro. Yeah, no.
1: <gasps> but we need that more in an isometric fashion, we need to hold on to that for duration. Like you're riding hooks, you're right, you're um, I don't know, you're in different positions where you need to continually hold that squeeze. So if you do that machine and you pinch the butterfly in and you hold that for like 10 seconds at a maximal strength or even a longer duration than that, then that becomes really useful. Or, um, also more applicable than the concentric strength, I think is the eccentric strength. So if we slowly resist it coming out, I think that's more ideal for your jujitsu biodynamic patterning.
0: For sure. Think about, um, a good example was last week, uh, Alex Caceres and Kevin Kroom, he had them in a, he had him in a triangle for, we'll say about a minute, but then you could physically, he everybody's like the commentators like, Oh, it's slapped on. It's perfect. All these different things. And you could physically see that he fatigued and it was yeah. from the legs. It was from the inside of the legs. He was not able to keep the squeeze that he had yeah. and he, he lost out on a finish and probably a performance bonus.
1: Well, and, and uh, again, that's again, what a lot of the commentators say, like all the wrestling, all the squeezing that happens, like that tires you out in the fight. Right. And that th- that's true. Because wrestling at an alactic, lactic pace is a lot more costly than when we get into our striking. This might be a good segue, which is more of an aerobic, more of an aerobic, alactic um, stress, sure. right? So the lactic costs a lot more energy wise, and it's less efficient than the aerobic, a lactic striking type of movements that you see in a standup
0: for sure. And let's, let's pivot to, let's start with just boxing. So just the hands, and then we'll get yeah. into, like kicks and Muay Thai after. So with just the hands, if we're thinking about bioenergetics, a lactic, <laughs> <Yep. laughs> like, like, there we go. That that's, that's the name Polish, of the game. I, Polish power. Hell yeah. Got that dub yesterday. Oh, <laughs> would just like to silence all the haters. I picked Jan. Everybody laughed at me. 30 pounds is a lot of weight. We all saw it yesterday. Good job. Good job. Boss. But yeah, I know I'm patting myself on the back, but, um, lactic that's going to be the thing. Obviously we need our aerobic base. Obviously like we need our recoverability. That's where that's going to be extremely crucial. And, and that repeat explosiveness or mm-hmm. that, but for the most part, it's going to be your four to eight second bursts and being able to do that as many times as possible with as high of an output as possible. Yeah.
1: And one way that I, I think of this lactic aerobic um, type of split or type of um, training need is I mean, we're in America and everybody's cultured to American football, right? Yep. And, and this is the energy system like typography that is American football. You Mm -hmm. go hard for a four to eight second play. You get, I I don't know. I don't remember what the play clock is anymore. It's like 35 seconds of complete rest and downtime. You're doing mental work, but physiologically it's rest and downtime. So Mm -hmm. you can akin that to striking into our boxing, just on almost like on speed, like one punch is going to take like half a second, right? A combination. If you're throwing a lot may take two seconds, right? Mm -hmm. And then you might be sitting static for 10, 15 seconds. So it's a two to 15 rather than like an eight to 35, but it's the the same type of work to rest ratio if you want to divide it down that way. So... When you think of the alactic burst and power and strength that you need for your striking, you also need to incorporate the aerobic system in the background that's working to help you recover. So you can burst and sprint and strike at the same power level next time.
0: Yeah. And I know you're going to hate me for saying this because you hate the, the uh, not analogy that I anyways, I don't remember what it's called, but the EMOMs, this is where I use EMOMs really well. And uh, this is where in my training that, it's that repeat explosion. So like, think about what I, a, a good way that I train this. Cause I do work with football players too, is think about repeat explosion. You yep. get 10 to 15 seconds of work, or maybe just eight seconds of work. You do seven kettlebell swings, you get the rest of the minute off. And you're doing that for 15 minutes, every minute on the minute, seven, yeah. seven kettlebell swings,
1: man. And and it's funny when you get that because you get the, the first two or three minute look, you're like, is this the workout? Are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> and then you get the 14, 15 minute look like, Oh my God, what did you do? You yeah. know?
0: <laughs> so, bro, I got that. I got that yesterday. So I was doing i uh, I've been doing something recently where it's a double Imam. So it's every 30 seconds. Okay. So we did it, I was working with Luke, uh, Luke Sanders, and we were doing a banded safety squat and it was just, just with the black band. So a one inch band, and we yeah. were doing three speed safety squats every 30 seconds for Rough. eight minutes. Rough, and it was three seconds of work as fast as you can go. Then you get 27 seconds off. So it's that Rough. very, that's that very high work rest, uh, not high, but a very, uh, kind of specific work rest ratio. Cause we're about to get into camp and it's, it's just uh, brutal burners. But the first yeah. two, he, he looked at me, He's like, bro, is Come this on, really bro. what we're, is this really what we're doing? <laughs> and guess what? By 12, I started to see his legs quiver and I'm like, bro, I told you this is going to suck.
1: Yeah. And, and it's the pacing, right? It's the pacing. Yeah. And uh, that's when you get to know your athlete too. It's like, it's like, is this guy going to throw, you know, tons of combinations and he's going to need more of the aerobic base or is he knockout artist and he's going to need more of the a lactic power. So, right. But no, but, well, it,
0: and another point, that's why I like the EMOM is because it's consistent work. Yeah. It's, you are going to get the aerobic background that you get to play off of the two energy systems, how they almost very, very similar to how they do in the sport. Yeah. So it, this is, it's a great thing for our sport specific training because we're getting the consistent work and the aerobic work because of the consistent pace that you're doing things at and not the prolonged breaks that a lot of people like to take with power work, but you're also yeah. getting that fast twitch repetitive explosion. Yeah,
1: no, and I don't I don't know why you think I dislike them, but I no, think you, I,
0: No, you specifically said you like the word or you hate the word.
1: Well, I like the methodology and I think it's a, a again a good specific tool for a problem. I hate um the the work hard grind every day crossfit mentality that comes along with EMOM. Maybe maybe that's 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 what, that's, it. That's what it is. Okay. So, <laughs> beyond that was striking I mean we talked about the bioenergetics and i mean similar to like our grappling sports i think a lot of striking sports fall under that umbrella i think boxing is maybe um the one that fits the most because it's it's one of the relatively less dynamic um type of striking sports that that factor into mma and it's one that that generally goes the longest right so Mm -hmm um and then we can take it to biomechanics so looking at how the shoulder needs to go into protraction and retraction with the punch we need to be able to roll it over we need to and that's again trainable qualities we need to be able to elevate and depress the shoulder blades to protect the head um and and different things i mean we can focus pretty much on the shoulders but then we also got to focus on the trunk and its lateral patterning to be able to transfer force um like we i think I can't remember how much we've tr- covered on the trunk. Um, oh, how, how, okay, good. <laughs> how it's a, a force transmitter, right? It's not a force generator. It's a, it's a transmitter. Yeah. So um, that's why you see boxers, whether it's, um, appropriately and smartly done or not training their core to no end
0: now the, yeah, the trunk is, I, I, when I talk to people, the trunk is the HDMI cable in the tele, <laughs> in the television equation, it hooks the Xbox into the TV. Like good that's one. how I, like I that's how I think I like about that the trunk. analogy. That's a good one. So, but something that two things that you said, I, I want to elaborate on because I, I say it all the t- I say it to my guys all the time. So I feel like mm-hmm. I need to say it on the podcast. So the first one is the ipsilateral patterning component. I've already talked about it with the sweeps in jujitsu, but when we talk about boxing in specific, every single strike you throw is an ipsilateral pattern. So that means that your hips and your shoulders are turning in the same direction, right? You're not like when you throw the strike, you're pivoting over the front foot and you're loading into that hip, making that stable base. If you're not training that in your, in your actual training and benefiting on that patterning, because the brain recognizes patterns that's how the brain works the brain doesn't under like the brain doesn't know all these different it, it doesn't give a fuck if you're throwing a hook or a cross or all these different things the brain understands this is where the body needs to move that's what it gets so if you're not capitalizing on the benefit of patterning and patterning the the ipsilateral components of everything in your strength conditioning, in your mobility work, in your stability work, whatever it may be, then you're missing the boat. If you're not doing a a dead bug rollover or a sideline get up, and that's just an example. It doesn't have to be that exact exercise. But if you're not doing something like that as a warm up to prep your ipsilateral pattern, you're, you're missing the boat. You're, you're behind the curve. It needs to be something you add in not just today, but yesterday, the, other thing that I think that I personally as a healthcare provider have changed my opinion on after, after getting involved, cause I've never struck before I started, I started working with these guys have only wrestled is the, the slight protraction that boxers and strikers sit their shoulder blades in at the beginning of the, at, at, during just a normal stance and during a guard. So these guys I've always been taught like, Hey, like you need to stay neutral in the shoulder blade. You need to do these different things. You need to, you need to keep the traps off and quiet, but then you look at all of these different biomechanical advantages of staying in slight protraction and slight upward elevation. When you're doing different things, you get a snap, your jab, you're able to generate a little bit more force because you're, uh, you're, you're it's, it's not even the force, sorry. It's the speed. You're already, you're quicker to the punch. You're able to cover more distance. You do need the free flowing scapula. You need to be able to retract and protract. And I think a good example of that is watching uh, Sean O'Malley, where he he sets his slings up very well. And actually, Brandon Harris, his strength coach, does a lot of protraction, retracting scapular exercises. But you don't need to stay in that Conor McGregor neutral scapula. It's okay to have a boxer's posture as long as it's not painful. And uh, a quick side note is like, I, I just was, I had a coffee with a catching coach. He's a, a minor league manager, but also he was a major league catching coach. And we were just watching, he was getting my opinion on, uh, like trying to catching mechanics and, and what I think. And the thing he kept bringing up the best catchers in the game. And, and I just kept seeing this over and over and over again, where I'm like, shit, they're staying in slight protraction slight and they're able to get to the ball better. They're able to stabilize their shoulder better and they're able to accept the force better because of that slight protraction. So that's something as a healthcare provider and the Kairos, PTs, ATs, whatever you are listening out there, it's okay for people to be in slight protraction just because that's not great for the traps. and It's going to lead to hypertonic upper traps. That's, that's fine because it's a biomechanical advantage in the sport. And that's not something you should try to train away unless it's giving them physical pain.
1: Yeah, 100%. It's that, it's that give and take of the, the quote unquote neutral, right? Like, yeah. like it's a range. And as long as we're asymptomatic, um, I think we're good. But then also like to the more extreme end, like high performance and elite level health are not synonymous Right to to an extent, we need to be able to sacrifice some of that. Like if you're gonna be the best in the world in anything, there's there's a trade off that comes with that, and um, a, a biomechanically disadvantaged posture um, for health becomes a huge advantage in high performance. Mm-hmm. So, yep. um, like we said, I think that's that's huge to understand and then apply when we talk about correcting or corrective exercises. Like you know, you're working with a general pop person, and they have protraction in their shoulders and they talk about neck tight stiffness and tightness, like by all means, quote unquote, correct that or, or look at that. But you talk about, talk to a fighter who has horrible posture doesn't complain of the neck issue and um and is getting a performance managed. Like that's not something that we need to, correct yeah. that's, that's don't touch it yeah that we need to accept and then if it gets symptomatic address to the extent that we address the symptoms but not take away the advantage like uh, again it's a it's a hard line to play but i think it's it's worth understanding again sports specific knowledge comes into play into your practice like for it sure can't, it should it can't not um, yeah. can't not double negative what else What else biomechanically with boxer? Um, We can go to a training side of things when I and and we talk about pounding the pavement. And I mean, we talked about how huge the aerobic system in is with the the boxing, but doesn't mean run miles endlessly on hard pavement. Um, (laughs) I I think I I like running personally. I think that's that's one of the best. Modalities uh, of cardio that you can get out there. It's, it's similar to the sport and we have a ground strike um, and it's active footwork, short coupling for the most part. Um, but there's also wear and tear that comes with it, right? You know, I mean, there's constant impact, constant loading, and you're doing that. Uh, and Austin talked about the no-nos of overuse, but when you're doing the same type of stress in your conditioning work as the same type of stress in your specific work, there's going to be some... Um, overarching stress that that culminates in some aspect
0: well and you got to think every single step you take is a rep every single step you take and i can promise you right now after working with sprinters and and runners that do this for professionally, every single boxer fighter wrestler whoever you are your reps suck (laughs) (laughs) like you don't know how to run right so every single step you take you're probably transmitting like you're probably transmitting force up the chain that is you don't, you don't need to, you know how many times I've had to fucking needle somebody's tib anteriors. Cause they think they're getting shin splints and it's really just because they upped their road work that could have all been avoided if they just rode an aerodyne bike or some shit instead, or just read yeah. a regular bike. If they want to get outside.
1: Dude, just, just mixed modalities in general. Like it's gonna one, keep you more engaged two do a little less harm for your body. Like um, spin bike work, road work, I mean, whatever you got to do, swimming, swimming is fantastic. Like that's Uh, like one of the least impactful things on your body, but still most aerobically stressful. Like, I mean, there's guys that swear off of it, but there's also guys that swear by it. Like, I think, uh, I think swimming is, is a great modality if that fits in.
0: I really like the skier too. Yeah, sure. Like that that's one that's I I like the skier for our combat athletes a lot because it gets the arms involved a little bit more, even though it's mm-hmm. a it's primarily a leg movement. But like think about like a slam ball. The skier is the same thing, just repetitively with <laughs> less force.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
0: So, or a snap down.
1: Yeah, for sure. And then, uh, I don't know. And then we get into like, I mean, versa climbers, I, I, I really like because it's total body movement, but that's a little less aerobically based, but, um,
0: yeah, just a little, a little less cost efficient. Yeah. Right.
1: For sure. <laughs> um, but switch up your, your, your conditioning aerobic modality, um, yeah. Just just for sake of longevity, too. When we talk about, you know, that's the other side of like when we talk about health and performance not being synonymous, but they have to work um, synergistically. Right. Yeah. If you if you sacrifice all of your health, your high performance is out the window. Right. Yeah. So it's a it's that that long game that you play that needs to mismatch it sometimes, but then also come together to create a successful career.
0: Yep. Yeah. So biodynamics on the force velocity curve where would you put boxing
1: boxing striking i mean is is towards the velocity side of things um i I would maybe give some of the edge to like a kickboxing muay thai as far as tippity top of the velocity curve because you get a little more velocity on, on the kicks than the punches but um again towards that top end um more velocity work a little less strength work um, but I did have something to say to that earlier when I wasn't paying attention, I wasn't just being a piece of shit. Um debatable. Yeah. Um, but I was looking on Instagram, there's an account at Train with Push, and push is a um velocity uh tech sport technology, but at train with push they do a cool thing in some of their posts where they do a sports specific force velocity curve. And I was looking on there and they have basketball rugby and I think one or two other sports, but I couldn't find an MMA one. But um, so I think that's something that we can create, but it, it's, it's just a cool model to see how they break down the different aspects of the sport along a force velocity curve. So we're talking about it, you know, um, theoretically right now, but I think that is going to turn into a product that we put out as as a force velocity curve specific to
0: MMA. Hell yeah. I'll let you take the lead on that one. I know. I know you will. (laughs) It was my idea. So it's only fair. Uh, let's get into the kicking shit, (laughs) kicking, kicking
1: shit. Let's, uh. And I think it, it might be best. And I know, and I don't want to cross any hairs. Kickboxing and Muay Thai are very different, but let's um, let's maybe group these together for sake of longevity on the podcast.
0: Yeah. So kicking shit. Uh, it, <laughs> it's talking Sounds about bioenergeti- like, go ahead, bioenergetics. Go ahead. Bioenergetics. Yeah. It's the same. Same as boxing. It, yeah. <laughs> galactic. Uh, um, I would I would say even. Personally, I would say even more alactic because there's not going to be as many. Obviously, you got to get your hands involved, but if we're just talking about leg strikes, which is what I'm kind of alluding to, Mm -hmm. you're really not throwing three or four at a time. Right? If you are, you if you're like Kyler Phillips yesterday, like you're doing cool shit. Yeah. You look like like the Matrix (laughs) out there, but like, uh, like if you for the most part, if you're if we're talking about kicking shit or the the leg strikes. Then you're throwing one, maybe two, if you're doing like a like a setup into a wheel kick, if you will. Yeah. Um, but it's it's gotta be like that's where we get into our two to four seconds instead of our our six to eight seconds combos.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and we we put out a, a post on MMA conditioning methodology and we looked at or we have a free PDF on our new website as well. But when we look at that there's two categories that Joel Jamison breaks down um, and two that we have on the chart that is lactic capacity or sorry, a lactic capacity, a lactic power. we look at boxing with the longer combinations as the a lactic capacity. Can you maintain the power for that, that six to eight, 10 seconds? Can each strike be as powerful and it needs to be that boxing goes more towards that capacity work for the a lactic, even mm-hmm. though the capacity is relatively short look we'll at the a lactic power is like how hard can you throw this fucking kick? Like that's, that's the question. So that's, that's what we need to more work on with the, the kickboxing and the Muay Thai and MMA for
0: sure. And then also as always
1: period, aerobic, uh, yeah. yeah,
0: period, <laughs> period, uh, as always aerobic passes and pl- aerobic work is going to play a factor in the background. But for the most part, it's, if we look at our kickboxing and Muay Thai bouts, I've been watching a lot of, uh, uh, fuck now. I forgot the name. That sounds dumb. I was going to say, uh, what's the big kickboxing one? Glory. I've been watching some Glory fights on Fight Pass recently, and they're awesome, but they're very fast-paced. Yeah, <laughs> dude,
1: high-level kickboxing is like beyond me. Like coming yeah. from like the wrestling background and everything, like that—that that might singularly be the thing that is keeping me out of MMA, like
0: performing myself. That is, um, bro, mine, mine's leg kicks. I got accidentally yeah. leg kicked. Fuck, I, <laughs> I, I got, I've gotten accidentally clipped in the face a couple times, like when I'm just wrestling with guys and they got gloves on. That's not a big deal. Like, obviously I'm not yeah. getting super hard, but like, it's not a big deal, bro. I got accidentally leg kicked. Like they just like, it was a combo they were throwing to set everything up and they leg kicked me. Fuck that. <laughs> Fuck that. That hurts so bad.
1: Dude. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I was, I was at a jiu-jitsu practice factory X and uh, I don't, I don't know. I went to a different time or a different coach or something, but they were working in like ground and pound into the wrestling jujitsu and like guys were like, tap me on the face and like, you know, you're getting caught a little bit on the hits and like, that's, sh- that's annoying. Like I, I didn't like that. And we were wearing big puffy gloves and stuff, but like, I did not like getting hit in the face, but it was something like I could manage yeah like the so- stinger getting leg kicked. <laughs> as no soon ducks. as I got
0: leg like, kicked I'm like, I immediately thought I'm like, I'm gonna stick to grapple fucking people. Like I am, <laughs> I am done with this whole striking thing immediately. Yeah. yeah <laughs> yeah yep. 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 I feel but get, getting into the biomechanics of the kicks, we need a whole, this is where I want to get into internal rotation of the hip. We need internal rotation of the hip to start snapping our kicks down. So yep. think about throwing like a question mark. Think about um, if you do snap like a, like how Justin Gaethje throws his inside leg kicks or his calf kicks. Man, um, that, he, that he whip snaps effect. Down. Exactly. Man. He knows how to use his sling and uh, he uses his leg as a whip. And a lot of that comes from he has the hip mobility to be able to get to that point, snap it down, but he doesn't have excessive mobility because he needs that re- reactive stability. So it's, a, it's almost like a Goldilocks principle yeah. where he only has maybe 10 to 15 degrees of internal rotation. But if he went to 20 degrees, he for the most part probably wouldn't be able to snap or be able to snap that kick as well. So it's finding the right proportions for the body you're working with. So that gets into the specific work, but as a needs analysis goes for kicking, which is what we're kind of talking about. I would say you need enough to pass. This is where I would say for our strikers, you need 10 to 15 degrees of internal rotation. If you're, if you got zero, like I, (laughs) I know a lot of guys do, you need to increase that. But if you have somebody that's got Gumby legs, That's where our stability comes in. That's where trying to train that stability of the hip is going to increase their leg kicking power and increase their force transference. Because if you're not able to reactively stabilize, if you have too much mobility, you're not going to be able to transmit the force. You need to have that stable point at the end of the kick where you can, hey, this is the end. (laughs) I can't keep going. And that's how you transmit the force through the leg.
1: No man, that that beautifully put. Like, and when when I get into like specific context, um, in general, like a a good rule of thumb that I that I follow, and I think with majority athletes is what you need, more range of motion leads to more power, right? Mm -hmm. Think about uh, let's think about a a, like a med ball toss into the wall. If I start with a med ball straight out from my body, I don't do any counter movement, don't do any rotation, and I just throw it to the wall. That's gonna have a very insignificant, very small amount of force. All right, now let's say not only do I give myself a counter movement, but I give myself like a crow hop away from the wall. And I take yeah. a back step big crow hop and then I load up and throw more range of motion, more power. Okay. And I think about that with kicking too. The more I can open up, the more I can and throw the kick, but effective to an extent, just like Austin's saying. Mm-hmm. We don't need people with rubber legs and we don't need creating long movement patterns that are technically inefficient and telegraphing, right? So mm-hmm we need to find that Goldilocks where we can produce a lot of force in an effective range of motion with an effective stability. So, um, but yeah, I, I look at hips, internal, external rotation for that. I look at core strength, again, transferring the force just instead of going from the foot through the core to the hands. Now we're kind of making a triangle where we go from the foot to the core to the other leg, right? Right. So, But um, it's still an um, epsilateral pattern. Fun fact. There you go. <laughs> um, and one thing I wanted to hit on the ipsilateral patterns too, is that is almost demonstrating the, the, the mastery of this dissociation dissociation association with the corn trunk right because we're moving at a different pace with the hips and shoulders but we're still trying to reassociate them which creates our power our whip our twist right so even though our athletes are doing that in their sport performance and th- and they're showing this level of, of like of mastery of that system there might be flaws in it right and that's where you pick up those injuries. You pick up the pain. You pick up different things. So that's why it's worth taking the boring steps of the, the breathing, of the core patterning, of, of ipsilateral patterning, and then building it up to our med ball power work, to our sling work, to our dissociation. Right. That's mm-hmm. that's the importance of the pattern. Is is not necessarily on a performance side to increase the power on the kicks through that biodynamic lens, but it's to increase or decrease the risk. That each kid takes
0: right. Well, I I equate it to how I explain it to the guys why I make them do this boring ass work, and they everybody gets that the power equation is strength times speed. If you don't have strength, you cannot have power. I equate the l- ipsilateral patterning to it's the exact same equation. If you want to promote power, you need to have the pattern. If yeah. you don't have a pat, if you don't have the ipsilateral pattern, or like it, I, it's to me, it's just strength. Yeah. Ipsilateral patterning is the strength behind. Yeah.
1: How? Yeah. And, and now we're kind of in the biodynamics part of it. But um, I, I made this analogy way back when I was like one of my first Instagram posts and it looks stupid. But um, when we create that strength and that patterning, it's almost like if you think of your body like a spring, right? Before with with no patterning or strength, your body is essentially slinky. There's nothing mm-hmm. going on. It's just rolling side to side, blah, blah, blah. No tension. Okay. We add the strength and we add some of the technical ability and we, we, then we essentially stiffen up that spring and now it looks like the shocks on your car, right? There's a lot of tension there, a lot of power, a lot of torque and a lot of force absorption, but force creation as well. So, um, thickening up that spring creates a a more dangerous person, more dangerous kick, elbow, throw, knee, whatever.
0: Hell yeah. And then, so the question for you, as we talk about the, I, I keep bringing up the curve because you're the expert in the curve is kicking above boxing on the curve or yep.
1: yep. Yeah. So it's if, the, it's the most velocity based. Like it may, t- like if we look at it, it, may take longer to throw the kick, but the speed at which it's coming at the body is the tippity top. Gotcha. And especially um, and, if you're doing, if you're doing it like a backflip kick, like uh, who's the one guy,
0: <laughs> Michael Perea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> then, then like I'm backflipping into yeah. a stomp. Oh
1: God. Anyway, <laughs> um, but no, it's the top of the velocity. That's uh that's where we get like to our most techno speed work.
0: So before we get into something else, I would be remiss if I don't also, I know this is getting long winded, but it's a lot of information.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, we're, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, we could do an individual episode of each and these analysis yeah. on each, but,
0: but something I think needs to get brought up also, and I don't want to spend too much time on it, is cage wrestling because cage wrestling is like that, that, that redheaded stepchild. Nobody wants to talk about, mm-hmm. but it's a separate entity. If you will, yeah. it's not the same as regular wrestling. It's like a mix between the isometric strength of holding somebody from jujitsu mm-hmm. and the, uh, the explosiveness and the biomechanical qualities that you need in wrestling. Yeah. So it's a good, healthy mix of two. So one thing I want to point out, we don't need to do the whole, the triple B's. Yeah. Uh, but what I do want to say is for cage wrestling, something that's extremely underlooked uh, is big toe mobility. We know from cage wrestling, we know from watching fights, one of the most effective ways to keep somebody on the cage to open up our strikes is going to be upward pressure, trying to drive somebody, not just into the cage, but upward, trying to lift them using, using their center of mass and elevating it to keep them on the cage, to take the weight off the feet. If you don't have big toe extension, you're not able to press as hard into that person to elevate them up. So if one thing that I train a lot of my guys on, if, if they are a wrestling base, which a lot of our fight ready guys are, um, is they need to be able to lift up their big toe while keeping all of their other toes on the ground. If you can't do that, it's almost like a brain game. If you can't do that, you don't have big toe mobility point blank. You don't. So it's an easily trainable quality that you just need to spend time on that is going to give you such a huge bang for your buck. If you can't say it's just a toe off phase just like in running. If you can't toe off and but hold that position for a prolonged period of time, that's going to take away from your effectiveness from keeping somebody on the cage and opening up the rest of your game because we know like if you hold somebody on the cage, you're looking for them to make the first mistake, right? <laughs> <And you laughs> like you, you, like you you're winning. If you're putting putting them on the cage, the judges see you as winning. So you're waiting, you're waiting for them to make a mistake, but if you can't keep them there and a lot of that comes from big toe mobility, pushing into the ground, thinking about lifting your heel off the ground, but keeping your big toe in the ground, that's what I'm talking about. Then you can't dominate that position as best as you can. So big toe mobility is going to be crucial for our cage wrestling um, and start adding that in. There's a whole bunch of different things that you can do. Big toe liftoffs, uh, towel squeezes, all like just general quote unquote foot rehab, but bringing that neurologic awareness to the big toe and allowing you to control the movement and strengthen the movement.
1: Yeah. Um, two things off that again, cause I'm big brain. I can think of two things. Um, Ooh. uh, I mean, and, and super scientific and nerdy, but like the more big toe activation you get into the ground, the more glute activation mm-hmm. you get muscularly. Like that's a, a big talking point for me on my deadlifts, RDLs, and and kettlebell swings, everything like that. Um, but branching off of that, we look at cage wrestling on the force velocity curve, this MMA force velocity curve that we've hypothetically created. Like that is even further to the force end right? Mm-hmm. Because we're holding position where it's more strength dominant, especially if we're trying to lift up a leg or, or take somebody down off the cage. Like you're literally just lifting and creating a lot of force and a lot of pressure. Or on the other side, if you're getting pushed on the cage, you're pulling up, trying to get under hooks and, and, and finding your position that way. Which again is a strength emphasis. Um, so again, furthest to the fourth side of the curve with, with uh, cage wrestling, because mobility is limited and uh, holding position is more emphasized.
0: Yes. And two more things. The one that I want to talk about is on when we talk about weights, because weights, if we talk about a needs analysis, you got to talk about different weight classes, the lower the weight you are, the lower the weight you are. And this is, this was very beautifully put together in the uh, UFCPI book from 2017. I think it was um, the, 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 book that we always reference. It's a cross-sectional analysis that they did on all the people that come through the PI and they were able to do all these different metrics. Roman did a great job putting it together. Mm -hmm. Um, But (laughs) they were able to figure out all the KPIs. So key performance indicators for the different weight classes and what's the most important for each weight class for each gender. And when we look at that, we look at the lower the weight class you are, the, the more important that cardio is and aerobic capacity is as well as strike volume, yeah. if you're not able to repetitively explode over and over and over and over again, then you lose. If you're mm-hmm. in 25, 35, 45, then as we get higher, we get into those, those big boys. When we get up to heavyweight, it matters a lot more that you have an increase in a lactic power than a lactic capacity. It matters a lot more. Think about Francis Ngannou. If you can knock somebody off of this fucking planet, like he get that dude can, like that matters a lot more than if you can throw four strikes in a row. Yeah, or the pace that he sets in his fight. Exactly, because mass moves mass, right? Mm-hmm. If you have more mass, you're able uh, like it's it's not a direct, it's not a linear translation of chin strength, right? Yeah. Everybody's like, oh, he's got a granite chin, but it's not a linear progression. Bigger people hit harder. Brains yeah. are brains are brains. Jaws are jaws are jaws, Mm -hmm. right? The bigger the person is, the higher likelihood for a knockout. So the higher the alactic power is going to the alactic power is going to be. As opposed to the lower we go, no matter what we're training, the alactic capacity needs to be higher because we need higher strike volume. So think about a good example. Even though he's like a middleweight, is Colby Cup? Or actually, Max Max Holloway is the perfect example. Max Holloway is the perfect example of alactic capacity. Mm -hmm. He can throw at a eighty percent for. Probably 40, Uh, bro, probably 40 minutes. I'll be real honest. Straight
1: without even breaks (laughs) in between rounds, just straight.
0: Yeah, but he's not, he's not known for that one punch knockout power, but he kills you with volume and the further, the lower the weight class you are, the more you need to train those specific qualities to train them for volume versus power. And obviously this is dependent, right? Sometimes there's, there's crazy cases like Henry Cejudo, who he does have that one punch knockout power, but I'm talking about on a spectrum and that's what the needs analysis is talking about in general, you need to train volume over power for the lower weight classes. And then right when you get around that welterweight, that 170 to 185, that's where power starts taking over and becomes a lot more effective.
1: Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, and again, like we said, those are the stat bars. Those are the buckets to pay attention to. And it's up to you as a practitioner to individualize to the person in front of you. Right. So like, like obviously there's exceptions to the rules, but look at these buckets, like it's just trending you in a good direction to have awareness of what's happening and what's going on. And that, I mean, that's an awesome point. They just brought up us and like, and again, it, it's hard. It's a hard place to meet it because you can't get so individual with it. Right? It doesn't have to, it's these general rules that we learn and, and we like to hold on to, but every rule is broken in sport. Every rule is broken in the performance, especially when you get to the world-class level, like there's outliers hundred percent outliers, right? That's all they are. So it's just taking these general rules, understanding them as your strength base and your foundational as a practitioner, understanding them as your foundational knowledge, and then accepting them and uh, individualizing them when you have an athlete in front of you to, to everything. So that's where you can show your mastery and your, your, uh, your chops as a coach or a practitioner.
0: Exactly. And then the other thing I wanted to get into is like, this is where uh, talking with the skill coach is so important, and understanding what this person, de- it, whether they're in camp or out of camp, yeah.
1: what their game plan is for the fight, their game
0: plan is, and understanding what this person needs to get better at. Right? If I can't openly and honestly have a coach or have a conversation with Eddie, our our head striking coach, about hey uh, Hunter, Hunter needs to work on whatever it may be, let's say fucking kicks. Yeah. If I don't understand the needs analysis for a kick then I can't openly and honestly benefit that person. Right. I I know like, Hey, I can make him, I can make him more explosive, but I need to understand the sport. And then I need to talk with the coach. And those two things along with that N equals one approach allow me to best benefit my athlete. If I don't, if I don't have all three of those different things, those three, those three key points, then I'm doing a disservice to my athlete. And that's kind of how this all ties together is the communication. We always talk about, understanding the sport, which was this episode, and then getting to know your athlete as a human and also how they move in their sport. And those three things are what's going to make the biggest bang for your buck and the biggest benefit to every single person, regardless. It could just be a, it could be a regular person, but every single person you work
1: with. Yep. It's a recipe. It's a recipe for, for coaching success and and way to attack, um, a camp or a, a preparation for a fight. But, you know, we cooks to chefs reference all day, like, this is your recipe. Here you go. Like, are you going to put it together like trash and and make garbage or are you going to be a chef and, create a, a fight of the night type of performance. So, um, it, that's, that is what it is. And I think there's a lot of, I mean, certainly there's a lot of, of knowledge and key points that came out of this podcast, but I think also there's going to be some PDFs that, that we're going to come out with free resources and things like, um, similar to the cheat sheet we did with our conditioning. Uh, I'm just thinking of a cheat sheet like right now about different disciplines and biogenetics, biodynamics, biomechanics on a free PDF for that website right there.
0: Dude, I, I actually really like that. And I want to say, Cause it's gonna force me to remember if I say it too. Using using this podcast, this podcast is your cookbook. Yeah. This should this should be your cookbook for the cook to chef analogy. This is what allows you, if you understand and not just this podcast, but all the resources on needs analysis for combat sports. The needs analysis is the cookbook. You really get to become a sh- and so you're a you're a cook, you really get to become a chef when you start understanding the person. But if you can't become a cook first, if you don't know the cookbook, if you don't know the steps to get to a certain point, then you're never going to become a chef. Amen. Yep. But yeah, dude, Be on look
1: out for more re- resources coming off, off of this. Cause I think this, again, this one's a staple for, for people to listen to. If we're just coming to building a fighter, if that's uh, if we're new to you, this is why we do this. This is where we find our expertise and our knowledge. And this is where we can share it with you. If you, uh, MMA fighters just coming to you randomly, or if you're looking to get into the sport and do jujitsu yourself, um, if you're an athlete and you're not quite understanding why the coaches are doing this or why I have to train this way, um, this should give you all the background, all the, the, the cookbook knowledge, like Austin's saying.
0: Yeah. But if you guys got to get in contact with us, hit us up in the show notes. We have our emails, our Instagrams. We also have our website, which will be out by now. Like Alex keeps referencing, uh, be on the lookout. We will have our programs. We're going to start having strength conditioning programs wrote by me and Alex and some guests as well. Uh, as well as I'm going to be putting out some different courses based around not injuries. Cause I can't do injuries over online, but strengthening certain areas that are going to decrease your injury prevalence. Um, so be on the lookout. I have a low back course already created and I'll be doing some other ones as well. Um, as always, please like share, subscribe, let us become friends with your friends. The only way to do that is if you tell your friends about us (laughs) Um, and this is building a fighter. My name is Dr. Austin Shane, Alex Friedman, and we are out.